0: Hey friends! Thanks for being with us. Thanks for joining us as we uh, turn midweek here, and as we continue through the Book of Exodus, getting to uh, close to the midpoint as well. And we are in the fourteenth chapter. We're uh, in the fifteenth verse. Um, if you remember, if you happen to be with us yesterday, you might remember. If not, that's okay. Uh, the Israelites have escaped Egypt. Egypt uh, at the Pharaoh's insistence, as the his heart was hardened again by the Lord is in pursuit with all of their army, all of their chariot. The people have had a mini rebellion in their fear. They've accused Moses of poor leadership. Uh, Remember, they said to him, why'd you bring us out here to die? What's wrong with the graves in Egypt? We just wish we were there. We told you leave us alone. And Moses has tried to encourage them. We left with the words, the Lord will fight for you. Now, we get um, kind of We've heard the conversation between Moses and people, now we get to listen in on the conversation between Moses and God, and this is fairly typical of the way this part of the story is told, but let's jump in here, verse 15. The Lord then said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward, but you lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it, that the Israelites may go into the sea on dry ground, Then I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, they will go in after them, and I will gain glory for myself over the Pharaoh and his army, his chariots, and his drivers. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gained glory for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his drivers. The angel of God was going before the Israelite army, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and took its place behind them. It came between the army of Egypt and the army of Israel. And so the cloud was there with the darkness, and it lit up the night. One did not come near the other all evening. So um, one thing that is interesting as we go through this, this narrative of Exodus, I think one of the things that makes me kind of smile in is the way which God often talks to Moses. Um, God seems to have very little sympathy. I won't say compassion. But God has a fairly short patience with the people. Uh, that gets increasingly shorter as they get increasingly um, – as they struggle increasingly to be faithful. But so God says to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell them to go forward as if – and I can imagine Moses thinking, well, oh, why didn't I think of that? I wish it was – you know, I wish it was that easy. But there, there is a kind of crispness and brevity to God's comments in regard to Moses telling Egypt what to do. And I, and I don't mean to say that he's he's short with Moses. I don't mean to say that he's impatient with Moses. I, I think God just fundamentally struggles to understand um, in the context of the story. I don't mean that in a, the big sense, but in the context of the story, God just can't accept the reluctance of the people. And so it's it's always kind of like this, and just, I just—I don't know, Michael. Maybe that's just me reading into it, but I think that gives it a humorous flavor. As I read this through the eyes of a person who is tasked sometimes with leadership, I think, well, you know, why do you cry out to me? Tell them to go forward. Wouldn't
1: sound like very satisfying advice. <laughs> yeah, it—it it is personable. It—it's uh, easy to uh, make this story. Uh, interpretively make sense in our lives when we can we can share that frustration of being between a rock and a hard place. Uh, in this case, it's a life and death kind of situation. And when God says something as simple as, tell them to go forward, it, it surely does fire within us a kind of, at least smile, um, to reflect on uh, Moses's, at this point, extreme frustration, maybe personal fear, uh, and, and now as God makes this point to go forward, he uh, calls upon this thing that we've seen before, the staff, and I think it's important, Clint, to note how this narratively connects us back to the very beginning mm-hmm. of Moses's adult story with God, because you remember um, that the staff is used from the very beginning by God to prove to Moses, number one, who God is, and then ultimately uh, becomes a tool in that first kind of proving to Pharaoh uh, to show that this is indeed God. And we remember that there, uh, you've got the magicians, and you've got this trickery happening, and each thing that Moses does with the staff, the magicians are able to replicate in some way. At this point in the story now, chapters later, uh, far, far down the road, Clint, what we have is... Uh, the staff being used, again, this time stretching it out over the sea that uh, the Israelites may walk on dry r- dry ground, it becomes the instrument of the people's ultimate salvation, connecting all the way back to that initial revealing. It will be the final revealing of God's uh, victory, in this case, over the Egyptians.
0: And I think that's the, the counterpoint, Michael, and I think very interestingly, God is clearly doesn't need Moses to do this the the power is not in the staff the power is not in Moses but i think on the other hand we see here another theme that is i think fairly common in the book of exodus god is honoring moses's place and god is lifting up moses in the eyes of the people so when God tells Moses, hold up the staff, again, th- there's no magic here. It's not some power of the staff that is making this happen. In fact, we're going to read that it's a wind from God that does the actual action. But the the picture, the the sight of Moses there with the staff holding back the waters is, I think, designed to comfort the Israelite people to build their assurance in Moses' leadership, in Moses' connection with God, in Moses' status as God's mediator to the people. Um, and so i I, I don't want to jump ahead, but I just think there are so many fascinating instances in the triangle here of God, the people, and Moses, and the way those relationships play themselves out amidst success and failure, Uh, amidst faith and faithfulness and faithlessness. I I just think it's a really interesting aspect of the story, and we'll try to point out when we get to those places.
1: Clint, I think it is true today, uh, though maybe we don't think of it in these terms, but in the ancient world, the sea is a wild, dangerous place. Uh, It is the the definition of the thing that is untamed. And so here this language, stretch out your hand over the sea— and divide it the idea that there could be a natural force that would literally take the wildness uncontrollableness of the sea and tame it would would make it safe is uh, it is as miraculous not that we should ever rank miracles but it's as miraculous as the firstborn dying it, it is this sort of thing that only could be conceived of as god doing it um, this this great force, and of course, somebody might come on uh, to this video uh, interested in uh, about you know how this happened, and and there's been lots of speculation. Some people have tried to think scientifically how this kind of thing might happen, where it might have happened. Um, the text does not uh, point out the the name of the bank or the exact spot, though that would have likely been known to the author. the The point here is less about the mechanics of how nature was manipulated for this to happen, the point of the story is to say that there is one whose ability extends to the fullest ability to control the sea, to to take this thing that no human can even contain and, and to divide it on dry ground so that the people can pass through it safely.
0: And there's a kind of bookend here. We won't get into it in the book of Exodus, but the book of Joshua begins early on with the people entering the promised land in the parted waters of the Jordan River. So the parting of the Red Sea, the parting of the river, entering the promised land, one is escape, one is entering, one is leaving, one is getting to, one is fleeing, one is establishing. You know, you see a a balance to this. So this language, this imagery gets picked up Later on in Israel's story, let let me read the last part of it here and we can finish the conversation. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea to dry land and the waters were divided. The Israelites went into the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on the right and on the left. The Egyptians pursued, went into the sea after them, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots and drivers. At the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down upon the Egyptian army and threw the army into panic. He clogged their chariot wheels so that they turned with difficulty. The Egyptians said, let us flee from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. So we see a couple of interventions here. The first we saw in the early part of the reading, the the cloud, the pillar of cloud and fire moves behind Israel kind of keeping them out of Egypt's view, confusing Egypt, standing between them so that we're told they didn't come close together. Then with the staff stretched out in his hand, the Lord acts for Moses as he dries the land, as he divides the water. Um, Michael, just to your point earlier, I I don't know how many explanations I have read on this through the years, Mm -hmm. earthquakes or droughts or winds or this thing or that thing but we saw this a lot in the book of Genesis the the book the book as it is just it has a reason why this happened because God did it and for the for the narrative that's all the reason it needs It doesn't need further explanation. It doesn't need further investigation. Now, if we want to speculate, could it have been this? Could it have been that? I don't know that there's anything necessarily wrong with that, although ultimately I don't find it very profitable. The story tells us what the story wants us to know, that God intervened on the part of the people. And if this is hard to imagine, that's because it is designed to be an encounter with the Holy One. It is designed as a miraculous intervention that the Creator does on behalf of His people. And that is not commonplace, and it is not easy to accept, and it is not easy to understand. And the story is just completely disinterested in our evaluation of it. It It's just not a thing. And so um, it is interesting how much thought people have put in through the centuries to questions that I think the Bible is altogether uninterested in.
1: It's an odd line to claim as a favorite line here, but my favorite uh, sentence here in this narrative comes from verse 22 when it says um, that the waters form a wall for them on their right and their left. And I think it's a Mm. beautiful example of the biblical narrative. It doesn't need a lot of words to paint a picture. Um, It doesn't need a lot of time to fire our imagination. I don't know how you can read a sentence like that just dropped into this story and not in a moment. Imagine yourself standing on the the dry ground of a body of water and see those walls on either side of you. Um, On one hand, it is a portal, a rescue, a escape route that didn't exist before. So it's a great gift. It's a grace. On the other hand, can you imagine walls of water being held there, and the smallness, maybe even the anxiety and fear, like, is this going to come back down on me? I, there's there's an other majesty. There's an other providence. There, there's a God who is all powerfulness to this story. And it's a simple sentence, Clint, but I, I think it is an incredible word picture. I think it helps us find ourself in the story, which, we say this often, but it bears repeating in the story as transformative as this one. We know that we're supposed to see ourselves in this story to see God delivering us because we've already had all this narrative about the Passover, about uh, passing on from one generation to the next. That the, All of that served to prepare us for what would be a piv- pivotal, uh, faith-defining, community-forming moment. And, you know, I just think the story is... Uh, really incredible of how it invites us into it.
0: Yeah, certainly a a visual, a, a really stunning, startling visual image. And there's something true in that, I think, Michael. You know, when when God leads us, when God leads people, it would be nice if God simply erased all the dangers. But as they look at the water— God doesn't somehow make all the possibility of harm go away. What God does is invite them to be at peace in the midst of it. And I, and I think, you know, uh, this is kind of off the top of my head, but I, I think you could find that theme throughout this book. The, the, the path that God leads these people on is a good path. It is not an easy path nor is it a moment where there are no threats. There will always be an Egypt. There will always be the wall of water. There will always be something there that if they focus on that rather than God, they will be afraid of, and rightly so. But there will also always be God through Moses most of the time, reminding them again and again and again that if they keep their focus on God, they need not be afraid of those things. And I I think that's an interesting way to imagine the story. And I think maybe this idea of walking through a kind of tunnel of water or a corridor of water piled up, whatever that phrase means, is an an interesting way to imagine it.
1: And I think that connects here to the the remaining narrative, Clinton, verse 24, this idea that the Lord is in the pillar of fire and cloud, looking down. It's this incredible culminating moment. We've talked more and more as this time has gone on through Exodus and we've looked at the plagues about how God is ramping up the warfare against Egypt. And here, God is like that general at, who has the high ground, literally, looking down upon the battlefield. And just the Lord's presence, uh, we're told, you know, is throwing the Egyptian army into panic. And as they panic, the wheels of their chariots are clogged, and um, you know they're, they're not able to move quickly. By the way, that's the greatest strategic strength of the chariot is its speed. So the, the thing that it was made by human hands to be good at, the reason why it's been brought to bear in this, situation is no longer valid. God has invalidated the tool itself. God stands above it, strategically advantageous. God makes this uh, instrument of war useless on the battlefield. And, you know, we're not, I, I won't spoil it for tomorrow because when God wins the victory, it will be decisive. But it, already in the story, Clint, I think the point is already, we see that, that this is a conflict between God and, and Egypt, and and it is not metaphorical in this story. It is God is taking on the army single handedly, and we're already told that God's winning.
0: There's an interesting thing that happens in the Old Testament. We saw maybe glimpses of it in Genesis. We saw it early in the Book of Exodus. When it, it, some of the strongest moments of the Bible are when characters who shouldn't know about God discern that it is God at work. And so here you have the Egyptian army. These are fighting men. These are warriors. These are soldiers. These are members and some of them high-ranking chariot drivers. That's not your run of the mill carry a spear and and go, you know, out on the front. These these are the best of the best and they recognize instantly in the narrative, "Let us flee." So again, not only are you getting hardened soldiers who say, let us flee, more importantly, they discern the Lord is fighting for them against us. The Lord is on their side against Egypt, against us. And I think um, it's a wonderful thing. It's a subtle thing, but a powerful thing that the Bible does, Michael, when it puts awareness into the... the mouths of people yeah. who you don't sp- expect to have that kind of awareness. And so I, I think this is a, is a really good example of it right here.
1: It's a really helpful point. I Yes, I say yes, and, I, and I'm not going to add to it. I think uh, it's important as we encounter a story like this to realize um, that it's teaching on many levels. Um, a story this significant um, carries meaning um, both in – the the story, the narrative, it has something to say about the identity of the people being saved, it has something to say about the God who is able to save, um, and it has something to say about what it means to be people who are called to trust that God uh, in, in our own lives. And I, I think it's it's wise when you read a text like this to slow down. It's easy to pass through things like the Lord is in the pillar of fire and cloud, and then to just keep reading on. But I I would advise you that when you come to moments like this in the scripture, slow down, read carefully, activate your imagination. And when you do that, you're not making something up. You're participating in the story as it was intended, as it the, the intention of its writing. And in doing so, uh, you too might have your own encounter with this God in in your own way and in this uh, time and place.
0: Sometimes the hardest stories to hear are the ones we've heard the most because we 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 think we know what they say, and we sometimes we miss the the other little handholds or the other little nuances that um, when we revisit those stories we might find again.
1: Well, friends, uh, that's today. Uh, Tomorrow's text is uh, decisive and it's difficult. I hope you'll join us for this as we continue on the study. But until then, be blessed. Thanks, everybody.